0: Um, just to remove all distractions, um, about three months ago, I tore my Achilles tendon. And so I have a boot on here. And so if you see me go back and forth from seat to standing, um, one, if I stand, you'll know I'm really passionate about what I'm saying. Um, but if I'm sitting, it's not that I'm not passionate, it's just my foot hurts. Um, so bear with me, um, before we start our time, uh, this really wasn't in my notes at all, but, um, as we sung songs to Jesus Um, the Lord kind of just took me to and reminded me of these verses. And so I'm going to read these and then pray and then get into the text today at hand. It comes from Colossians one verse 15. And he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. And he is above all things and in all things, or in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Would you bow with me in prayer, Father, I'm reminded that, God, I'm just so, we are desperately in need of you. Father, it's so easy to come here week after week and to think that our deeds are the very things that please you. To think that if we would work harder or try better, that somehow that would win your love and favor on us. But Father, you desire so much more from us than just the completion of tasks or responsibilities. Father, you desire to know us. You desire to know us so much that you would send your son Jesus to die and to make the impossible possible, that we could truly have relationship with you, that we could say with our lips that we love you, but, but out of our hearts flows a true and honest desire of that very same affection. Father, we come to you not as one simply needing guidance, but we come to you as one needing to experience your power, to see and know a God who can truly, truly take hardened and cold hearts and transform them instantaneously, to make them hearts of flesh that would have new affections and new desires, that would love you, Lord, but that would also fully understand the love that you have for us. And so, God, I pray for our time right now. God, your people don't need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. That's the only thing that sustains us is your word and your voice. And so I pray that you would do just that. Father, I, I acknowledge that I cannot change anyone. I don't possess that power. That's not my responsibility. But I pray that through your Holy Spirit, Father, would you give me grace? Would you give me grace to merely tell others what it is that you've already said? And I pray that that truth and that, those words would not just ring around in our mind, but Father, would it penetrate the depths and the core of who we are as people and change us? That's how you get your glory. You change people. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Over this last week of kind of reading Mark chapter 12, um, I have to confess it was a tough text to kind of wrap my mind around. It wasn't only just a text, tough text to understand, but I, I saw in that text this sense of, God, so, it's so easy to get caught up in doing things for you. It's so easy to have a misconception about who Jesus is, so much so that that misconception leads us down the, the road of trying to work harder, trying to be better, thinking that somehow my works and my efforts and my attempts to gain God's favor is what God really wants for me. And so as I read through Mark 12 and 38, and as we'll see in this text, the, the question that I want all of us to, to kind of think through the thing that I want to shape our time is what does Jesus really want for me and what does he want from me? For those who grew up in the South, it's so easy to get, become so familiar with church, just doing things for the sake of doing it, because that's what we were taught, that's what we saw. We know that we were supposed to be in church on Sunday. That on Monday we should be at a Bible study. On Tuesday we should be on deacon night. On Wednesday we should be in a small group. On Thursday we should be praying with others. But there's something about just doing things for the sake of doing things that eventually leaves us at a place of feeling overwhelmed and burdened. That the weight of expectations or the weight of fulfilling some type of grid or or some type of um, religious activity slowly eats away at us. It becomes too much to bear. All of my life can't be consumed simply by religious activity. And so as we think about that question of what does God really want from me and for me, my prayer is that what we'll find is that the things that we thought about Jesus, what we perceived to be what God wanted from us, that Jesus will make it completely clear to each and every one of us that God is not after religious activity, but God is after our hearts. Jesus takes no pleasure nor takes any glory from us just being able to do things. The thing that he takes glory or gets glory from is to take a person who, who would seek to gain his affection and to shower them with mercy and love. And that from that, the love that we receive from God, that that would be the thing that compels us to do good things for him. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark 38. And just to give a backdrop, we've been going through the book of Mark or the gospel of Mark, and for those who aren't familiar with the gospel or even what, the, what, what a gospel is, Mark's Mark's purpose is to show the world and proclaim as a witness that Jesus is not only Messiah, but he's the Son of God. And not only that, Mark specifically writes through a group of people who are suffering. And so the way that that Mark is going to paint or show Jesus in a different light than some of the other Gospels is simply by showing Jesus as the perfect suffering servant. And that in seeing how Jesus suffers in his life, how seeing how Jesus lays down his life for, us, for others, that now becomes the model by which we can be encouraged that though we suffer, though we go through hard times, the person that we can run to, the thing that we can go to for encouragement is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So here in 38, Jesus has had an incredibly long day Over the span of an entire day, Jesus, at the latter stages of his ministry, leading up to his death, Jesus has encountered an onslaught of attacks from the religious leaders of the time. They've questioned his authority. They've questioned his commitment to obeying laws. They've attacked him in every way possible, but to no avail. And so here, Jesus, in a declaration, in his final appeal to the crowds who have looked upon him For answers and for direction, he begins with a warning. Verse 38, it reads, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses And for pretense, make long prayers. In order to understand this, we have to know who the scribes are. Who are these people that Jesus is warning those who are listening about? Well, the scribes were the very people that God initially had wanted to be the ones who communicated on behalf of God to others. They were the ones who preserved the integrity of who God was and his scriptures and were actually responsible for walking it out. Here, though, the scribes Instead of being a lighthouse to the world of who God was and what he wanted from them, the scribes had twisted, taken advantage of their responsibility as spiritual leaders. And so now Jesus addresses them, not from the standpoint of just trying to give some great advice, but with a strong beware. Beware of the scribes, those who would proclaim all of the truths about God, Those who would say that they have a right answer for every single thing as relates to the matters of life. But if you were to inspect it just a little bit closer, you would find nothing more than greed and death. Some of us have had experiences growing up in the church where that's what we've seen. That the very people that we wanted to trust and entrust our hearts and our souls even to the very people that we look to for the answers about who God was, we've only been met with unmet expectations. There's a hypocrisy that has turned us off from God and even the church. And so Jesus here wants to caution us because he wants us to know that though that's been your experience, I want to speak full force to that and say that I don't cosign. I don't co-sign the hypocrisy of those who would use me as a means for their own personal gain. Jesus wants us to be aware that he wants more from us than just religious activity. And so he starts with a warning. Beware of the scribes. Now, three things are mentioned about the scribes that I think we have to pay close attention to is that one, they like to walk around in long, long robes. And the first thing that you can ask is, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with wanting to be fresh? What's wrong with wanting to wear nice things? Well, Jesus isn't simply wanting to point at the fact that, about their clothes, but he wants to draw our attention to their motivation. The scribes specifically, in order to distinguish themselves from the masses, what they wanted to do is they wanted to, instead of wearing colorful clothes, as what all, which is what all the Jewish people did, they would wear white clothes. So that as they moved and maneuvered throughout the crowds and the masses, what they would find is that people would automatically recognize them. And this lust for recognition would eventually lead to, what what, what, or was the very thing that motivated how they dressed themselves. But not only that, they wanted honor for themselves. A people who were supposed to give glory and honor to the one who was truly worthy wanted to store it up for themselves. And so they would be intent on, as they walked through the marketplaces in their long robes, that they made sure that you acknowledged them. They made sure that you recognized them. And so they stored up honor for themselves. And then thirdly, they wanted the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. There was this lust for recognition. They had to be recognized. It wasn't enough to sit on the front row. Well, they, had to, they had to be on the stage. They had to be seen as more godly than everybody else. They had to let people know that I'm not your equal. I'm not someone you should look eye to eye with. I'm someone you should look up with. Someone you should look up to. And so Jesus, with a level of disgust of seeing that their worlds evolved around and wanting to appear godly, though internally, their souls and their motivations weren't for the benefit or the pleasure of other people. That their motivation was their own selfish gain. It says when he saw a similar occasion of this, can be found in, Mark, in Matthew 9, 36. I think in order to understand why Jesus gives such a stern warning, we have to understand where his heart is. In Matthew 9, 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is motivated Fully by the reality of when he looks out at the crowd, he doesn't just see a group of people, but he sees faces. He sees souls. He sees hearts. He sees people who are broken and needy. And so what fuels him or what angers him is that in searching, looking at these crowds, when he sees the brokenness that exists with you and I, that people would take advantage of that reality. That people would prostitute God for the purposes of their own gain. And you know who the collateral damage is? You and I. The collateral damage that comes when hypocrisy is rampant is that people's lives are impacted. And so Jesus doesn't look at the crowds with anger like, how could you be so stupid? How could you be so silly to follow these people? But he looks at the crowds with compassion. His heart breaks. It would be safe to say that as we look at what's going on in Jerusalem at the time, that our times are no different. That is, if you spend any amount of time uh, in church, if you spend any amount of time on YouTube, if you spend any amount of time around Christian faith, I think that you can recount instances that would cause you to be just as suspicious of those who would claim to know God. And want to lead others to him. This can be seen sometimes in the misappropriation uh, misappropriation of finances within the church. This can be seen in that the, the very person, the pastor who was supposed to care and love others. We find out that he's sleeping around with women in the church. That members within the church, who on Sunday will smile and say all of the right things, blessed and highly favored, oh, great day, all of these things, but the moment they leave the church, their lives are like hell. Some of our experiences may even be growing up in churches where there would seem to be all these extra rules, all these extra things that we had to do. Women couldn't wear skirts, they had to wear pants, or the vice versa. It's not okay to drink alcohol. Drinking alcohol is a sin. No, you can't dance at that party because God doesn't want us to have fun. We've got to be serious and strict. All of these things that we can kind of pull to are extra things that may shape our experience. I think what God is, what Jesus intends to do here is to say, man, I'm not after Your compliance to a list of rules. I didn't come for that. To make Jesus out to be nothing more than a good teacher, someone who looks at the report card of your life and checks off what you did well and what you didn't, that reduces Jesus to nothing more. He's not a God. Jesus is not a God if all he cares about is our to-do list. Jesus comes to bring so much more to that for us. And so as he exposes the real motivations behind the heart of hypocrisy amongst those who are supposed to care and to lead others to God, I, I, I want us to see that when God exposes things in our lives that are not pleasing to him, or he gives us cautions, it's not so that he, because he wants to restrict us from any type of fun or pleasure. That's not why he does it when God or when Jesus gives restrictions on our life or he cautions us about certain things is because God is much more after our true joy. He's after our true love for him and he wants to protect us from things that otherwise we would devour us. Otherwise, things that would destroy us. A father, a good parent, doesn't look at their child and tell them, don't put that fork in the outlet because he wants to damper their fun. A good parent tells his child, don't put that fork in the outlet because he wants them to live. He doesn't want them to die. If I see my son or my daughter going towards danger and I say nothing, then I don't really love them. Jesus has no problem calling out the hypocrisy and the abuse that he sees going on within Religion be primarily because he knows that it's damaging and leading others down a road that leads to destruction. Jesus doesn't want to cosign religious activity. And so, as, as he goes on, let's keep reading. We saw that the Pharisees, though they had an outward appearance of what were perceived as godliness, that God or Jesus reveals what, the, what really was going on with the Pharisees or with the scribes. He says in verse 40, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Now let's just think about it. Let's break down widows. Over the last, last week, Pastor John talked about kind of giving a little bit of explanation about what, who widows were and why they were so vulnerable in the culture that they lived in. Well, widows could be viewed as the least of the people Simply because when a widow died, they were left sometimes with property, but many times they were left at a vulnerable state that, at the end of the day, they had no means of providing for themselves. Some were left with kids. And so if you can just imagine your husband dying and there was no life insurance policy. Your husband dying and there was no plan on how you're going to eat. It wasn't like you could just go and get a job because you had a master's degree. No, in these times, the widows... When they became a widow, it was almost as if they were at their last stake in life. And so if you can view widows through the lens of how God views them, to see their brokenness and their vulnerability, it makes it all the more um, clear to us why God is so angry that these people who are supposed to care for and love and meet the needs of these widows would now as it says, devour their houses. When you think of devouring a house, you wouldn't necessarily think of that as coming from someone you're supposed to trust. But that was the reality here that we see in in Mark is that these leaders were devouring houses. And not only that, the way that they were devouring houses was that instead of seeking the concern and the care for the, for the widows, that they would actually take money for, them, for themselves. They would charge to pray for them. Turn on the TV, turn on TVN, turn on some of these channels, and I guarantee you, you can see the same thing happening where people are charging you to pray. Charging you to talk to God on their behalf. This, our times are no different. What abuse is going on, that we see going on here in Scripture? It points to that though the scribes had so much going on for them, as so the scribes were so active in spiritual work at the root of it, lied a hardened heart far from God. A hardened heart far from God. A couple weeks ago, Um, Pastor John has kind of introduced me to a new hobby. And so this new hobby is, or you could say a hustle, is that we'll buy rare sneakers that come out. And then in getting the sneakers for retail value, what we're able to do is take those sneakers and then go to the sneaker black market, which eBay, and sell them for twice as much of what retail value actually is. And the reason that we're able to do that is because The supply is so small, but the demand is so great. And so people are willing to pay crazy prices for a pair of shoes. And so about a week ago or two weeks ago now, the Yeezys came out. So I didn't really get a response. The Yeezys came out. Let me me explain what that is. So Kanye West, he's a rapper. He has a sneaker line. And so what Kanye has done is he said, man, I'm going to release a pair of shoes every so often, but I'm only going to release a few of them so that people, so only a few few group of people could actually get them. And so I'm not really familiar with the sneaker game. Like I remember back in high school where Jordans would come out and people would like stand in line for days and hours. But, But there's been an upgrade in the game today. They don't do that anymore. People got killed over that. So they're like, instead of having people come and wait in these long lines, let me have them enter into a draft. And so it's kind of like, it's like the, shoe, the shoe lottery. So you put your ticket in, and then eventually you'll see, oh, did I get a pair of shoes? So me and John, we go up to Linux Mall, and we're like, yo, we're going we're gonna to get these Yeezys, because we can make about three or $400 on them. Cool, flip them, great. <laughs> we go to the mall, we put in our tickets, and they're like, okay, two days later, you'll hear something. So a couple of days goes by and we're like, man, like, did you hear something? I'm like, nah, I didn't hear nothing. He's like, man, ben, do you think we're I'm like, I don't know, man, I can't, I don't know if we're going to get these shoes. So Friday hits, three days later and we're like, man, I guess we didn't get the shoes. So at this point, I'm okay with it. I'm like, we didn't get the shoes, on to the next one. But then about a week later, someone in this church sends me a text. I won't mention names. Someone in this church sends me a text and they're like, yo, there's this guy who has a store and he says that he has Yeezys, still for sale. So now all of the feelings of, man, I kind of let that go, they start to rise back up and I'm getting excited and I'm like, yes, we're going to get, man, I'm not going to buy one pair, I'm going to buy two pairs. So I go to the site and I start looking at it and I'm like, man, all the pictures look legit, everything looks great. And so I ask him, I say, man, like how much are you trying to sell these shoes for? He's like, man, $300. So mind you, the shoes actually only cost about $210, and these sneakers are going for about $700 online. So immediately, red flags start coming up. Like, man, this this would be so dope if this was true, but I don't know. So I text our our resident shoeologist here, um, Caress Spencer. I don't think she's here right now. And I'm like, yo, Caress, look. Someone sent me this link to these shoes. Can you inspect it? Can you let me know? Are these shoes legit? So she goes to the site and she inspects them. And the first thing she says, man, is like, ah, it seems too good to be true. Why would they only try to make an $80 profit when they can make a $500 one? She says, I don't like the way that the pictures are. I don't like how they have the angles of the shoe. You really can't authenticate what's going on. But I'm like, nah, 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 caress, caress. They're going to give us a receipt. It comes with a receipt. You See the box, it looks the exact same. So I still didn't want to let go go of my great hopes. And so I go on YouTube, because that's the source of all truth and knowledge. (laughs) I go on YouTube, and I'm like, let me find out how to know if Yeezys are really true. And so they give me this list, point by point breakdown, and they say, this is what you need to look for. After further inspection, all hope is lost, because I'm like, man, these are fakes. These are fakes. And what would have been worse is if I had given him my $300 for a pair of shoes that I was expecting to be the real deal, only to receive a box of phony kicks. My wife would have had a major problem with that. <laughs> so there's two there's two ways that we can kind of view This scenario. My first view could have been like, man, Caress and these other YouTube experts. Man, they just wanted to, they they didn't want me to have the shoes in the first place. They're haters, man. They just want to rob me of all my joy of being able to see these shoes that I can make a few hundred dollars off of. But the second view that I think that is the view that we need to take even as we approach Jesus is that I could be grateful that there was actually a warning. Is that I could be grateful that there was someone I could go to who had more expertise and more experience than I that could actually show me and, and help me to grasp what authentic Yeezys should be like. The misconception behind Jesus is that he is like the former, that he just wants to to control our lives, to rob us of all fun and joy, and to do so in a way that would not bring about life, but bring about death. His condemnation of what he sees taking place with the scribes, is the reason why it hurts him so badly, the reason why he's outspoken about it, is because he doesn't want you and I to be lost in trying to figure out what is the right way to God. And when we have bad examples and we have bad models, it muddies, the, it, it muddies our ability to be able to discern what is the right way to God. The thing about Jesus is that, yes, he's going to condemn and he's going to um, warn us of the things that are going to hurt us. But the beauty is that though he doesn't want our religious activity alone, The beauty is, is that he's going to point us to something far better. He's going to point us to something we can place our hope in that isn't something that we have to be unsure about, but is something that we can be absolutely and completely assured on. And that's himself. And so as he continues on giving the final condemnation for the scribes, he introduces another person, another widow. And the second point that that we're going to discover is that though Jesus is not after our religious activity, he most definitely is after our hearts. That God's aim and his focus is not after us doing good things simply for doing good things, but it's his aim and his focus is that he would change and transform our hearts and that, that that would lead to worship. That would lead to why we do the things that we do as Christians, because we love God. Not because we're afraid of some, or uh, afraid that we can't meet some standard. Verse 41, read with me. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make one penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. Another widow enters the scene, and as Jesus sits and he watches the religious activity going on, where people had come to give to the church, he notices this one individual... This widow, by all measures of worldly success, had none of it. This widow, by all of our definitions of what we could think was how we should live our lives, she had none of it. She would be deemed as a failure, but yet she catches the attention of our Lord Jesus. So Jesus sits down. He watches rich people put in large sums of money. And then he watches a poor woman come and give two coins to make up a penny. Now, in our culture, it doesn't, there's nothing less than a penny. The only thing less than pennies are having lint in our pocket because we don't have any money. So for this woman to take two objects that eventually would make up a penny, we could assume that, man, she was living in poverty. She didn't have anything else to offer And so the beautiful thing about what Jesus does is that he not only recognizes her, but he commends the sacrificial gift that she gives to the church or to the temple. A question that I think we could all ask is, why would this woman give her last to God? Why would she give up everything to God? Now, I want to be careful that this text right here is not a, um, a prescription for how we should give. That's not where we're going to go today. But I do think that there are some things that we can see in with that we can, um, that we can tell from the life of this woman that, that ultimately would lead her to be willing to sacrifice everything for the God that she loved. For us as Christians, the only thing different between us as Christians and And the religious hypocrites that we see mentioned early on is that we recognize our need for a savior. Is that we recognize that, that all of the activities that we do don't add up to enough to buy God's approval and love for us. And so instead of pretending, we denounce the things that we do that are wrong and we cry out to God for his forgiveness and mercy we lean on the righteousness not of anything that we can gain but we leave we lean on the righteousness of Jesus and so this is not again this is not a prescription for how we should give but a question i want all of us to ask ourselves is if this poor widow were willing to give all for the god that she loves would be we be willing to do the same God here is not looking so much at what the specifics about what taking, what's taking place. He's looking at the work that has been done in our heart that would compel her to say, I'll forsake it all. If God require it of me, I'll sell it all. I'll give it all up. I'll go where he wants us to go. I'll do everything. Because I know that I'm not living for the here and now. I'm not living for what this earth or what this world can give me. I'm living for the, the world to come. And so this woman has 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 grasped that. She's she she realizes that it's not so much about the amount of her gift. It's about the attitude of her giving. If God were only after the things that we could do that can be explained away by our own will and strength, we can be rest assured that God is not involved in that. God's not involved with that. There's a way that we can do good things without needing God's help to do them. And so here, as he points us back to a model, an example, what he's saying here is that, man, I'm not after activity. I'm after your heart's. What it means to be a Christian is that we love Jesus. And not just love him with our lips, but that our life overflows from that love to where it would be willing to sacrifice our last if that's what he required from us. For those of us sitting here, this can seem, if you're like me, this can just seem like a heavy text to kind of come from. It can almost lead us feeling like, Guilt and and despair, even. Like God, I I see all of the ways that I store up for myself glory, that I want the esteem of people, I want wealth and riches, and I'll even use good things that are meant to point others to you. I'll even use that from and and rob you of of those things for myself. But the beauty of what Jesus offers us is that where the scribes Use their money for their own personal gain. We can look to Jesus, who sacrificed his wealth; he sacrificed his life for you and I. Where the scribes who were motivated by nothing more than their own greed, Jesus lays his life down. For the scribes who would take advantage of those who were the least of those, Jesus comes for the least. He comes to bring life in the hope to those who will forever be hopeless. that this is, this is the Jesus that we're talking about. This is the Jesus that we're seeing here in his word. We want to fully recognize that a lot of us come from experiences that are painful. A lot of us come from places of deep hurt, even now, that breeds skepticism about who Jesus is or even Christians even. The thing that I hope that we grasp is that when God talks about what he wants for our lives, he does it as a parent would their child. His hope is not to bring pain without pointing us to a greater purpose. And that greater purpose can only be found in him. And so our, my appeal for us is to realize that Jesus invites each and every one of us to follow him. He invites us to follow him. But he doesn't want us to follow him blindly. He doesn't want us to be misinformed with who he is. And so as we've gone through this series, and as we even see here in the text today, Jesus does not cosign on the hypocrisy of those who would use him or godliness for gain, but what Jesus is after and what he can provide that makes him different from all other religions, and all other gods is that he doesn't deal with our activity, but he deals with our hearts. That what he offers to us is a changed heart. New feelings, new emotions, new cravings, new desires. You can try all of your life to manufacture that, but the only place that you will find yourself at is disappointment and anger. You don't possess, we do not possess within ourselves the ability to produce a heart that would love and live for God. That can only be found in Christ. That can only be found in one who possesses the power enough to take hard and calloused hearts. And to make them soft and malleable. And ones that would desire and crave and hunger for the things that please the one that they say they love. And that's Jesus. Let us pray. Father, I'm grateful that you want more from us than an outward conformity to a list of rules. But God, you want us to know you. And you want us to know you for who you really are, not who we would want to make you into. And so God, I pray that today would be a time where we really think soberly about what it is that you want from us and for us, that we would search your word, that we would seek, seek you in a way that would ultimately lead to us grasping who you are as a good and gracious and merciful God. Father, lead out in your appeal that people would see your goodness, and that would be the thing that leads to repentance. Father, no works No task, no anything can earn your pleasure and your favor. But Father, we thank you that Jesus is the one who has lived the perfect life that we could never live. And that in return for us placing our trust in him, that he offers us that very same righteousness. Father, we're grateful that you forgive sinners and that you offer us a hope that you Will do a work in us that only gives you all the glory. We thank you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.